I want to give an extra thank you to Matt for the blessing that it's been to prepare in, Matt, or in Nehemiah 9. It's, when he assigned me Nehemiah 9 to, to preach on, I was thrilled because this is one of my favorite passages in all of the Old Testament and the scriptures as a whole. But it has just been rich to my own soul as I've been preparing. So thank you, Matt. Um, the message that we're going to be talking about today is uh, deep and beautiful. And so hence I uh, dressed up a little bit more because it was meaningful. But that's not actually true. My, the jeans I wanted to wear were dirty. And so it was either wear this or wear like sweatpants. So, so here I am, not wearing sweatpants in front of you, looking a little bit nicer. But no, I am, I am very excited to be teaching out of Nehemiah 9 today. It is a pertinent message for us today and forever. Now, as I start, I want to ask you guys to answer this question. When you sin, what is your reaction to what you think God's reaction to your sin is? What's your reaction to what you think God's reaction to your sin is? I want you to think about that. Because that's one of the big questions we're going to be asking today. Now, as Christians, our first response usually is going to be, well, I I know that God is gracious and merciful. I know that he's forgiving. But a lot of times that kind of just stays in this intellectual place in our minds. But our thoughts and our feelings, our emotions, betray us. When we actually sin and we think, oh, Maybe this time it's too much. We get that sense of anxiety of what is God going to think about me this time? I uh, want to take you back to a a time in my life. I lived in China. And China at this point in time and in this particular place I was living was a cash-based society. There were no credit cards. There were no electronic payments. So if you wanted to pay rent, if you wanted to eat, if you wanted to live, you had to pay cash. So I had to go to the ATM. Now, going to the ATM created a great deal of anxiety for me. Maybe you get anxiety when you go to the ATM today because you're afraid maybe there won't be anything there for you. But that was not why I had anxiety when I lived in China. I knew that money would be there in the same way that many of us as Christians, we know that God is gracious and merciful and forgiving. But it was for another reason I had anxiety. You see, there was one ATM I could go to in my city where... I wouldn't be charged fees. But this ATM had a problem in that it would occasionally eat my debit card. So I would, whenever I would go to the ATM, I wouldn't know whether I would walk away with both money and my card, or if I would walk away with no money, no card, and no ability to actually get money in the future. And this happened to me multiple times. If it ate my card, I had to hope and pray that the next day I could go to the bank and that the people there would be willing to give me back my card when they opened it up in the morning to restock the ATM. If it happened on a Friday, I had to wait till Monday. And one time this happened to me right before I was about to go on a two-week trip. So needless to say, I got anxious every time. It did not matter that I knew I had money in the bank. I wondered if I would actually be able to get it. Now, I'm not saying this morning that God is an ATM and that he's just dispensing forgiveness to us. I don't want to reduce God to that. I don't dare do that. But I do want to draw a parallel and ask us, what is our heart when we think about our sin and we approach God? Is there a limit to his grace? Have I screwed up too much this time? 
We've been in this Trouble and Disgrace series in Nehemiah, and we started seeing that God's people were in trouble and disgrace. They had been exiled, but many of them had been able to return back to Jerusalem after a period of time, but the walls of Jerusalem were torn down. They had no protection, and there was great shame. Great shame, trouble and disgrace. But we saw through Nehemiah and through his leadership, through the reforms that he brought, that God's people started to build the wall and they completed it and we're seeing revival happen. We saw that last week with our joy and stronghold. The people were turning to worship God rightly. They were reading and hearing from his word and responding rightly to God. And we started in chapter 9 last week seeing them celebrating the festivals and confessing and worshiping. So today, we're going to dive back into chapter 9 and we are going to see the continuation of their confession and worship. And guys, it is absolutely beautiful. So, let me pray and then we will dive in. Father, we thank you that you are a gracious and merciful God and that you have given us your word. Father, I pray for clarity of speech in my mouth today. And may we have soft and tender hearts that are ready to hear. May your spirit work in our hearts. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's read together chapter 9, verse 1 to 6, just to remind ourselves of what is going on. 1 to 5, excuse me. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabneah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. So God's people are gathered together. They're confessing their sin. They're worshiping the Lord. And we are going to see just exactly what they are confessing and how they are worshiping. The rest of this chapter is a picture of what they are doing for that quarter of the day. They are responding to what they have heard in God's word, and they are confessing and worshiping. So we are going to join together for the rest of this morning and just see what that looks like, and then what are its implications for us. All right, let's dive in. Verse 6, they say, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven the heavens of heavens. With all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. So they start out declaring who God is. They say, you are the creator. He spoke everything into existence. He wasn't exhausted. He wasn't weary. He just spoke it through the power of his word. But not only that, he preserves it through the power of his word. He just holds all things together. He preserves it. It exists because he wills it to be. He is independent from creation. He's not like us. We depend upon him for our existence. But he just is. And they start with that. They say, you are the Lord. You are Yahweh. You are our God. You have created everything. So they start. He is high and above all of us. And we're going to find out more as they confess and as they worship just what he is like. 
So let's keep going. Verse 7. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. Okay, so God, he's created the world, and now he creates a people. He calls Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans, calls him Abraham. He's making a people for himself. So he's not just the creator God who just creates stuff, but he also creates a people. But that makes us ask, what exactly is he like? Is he like Allah who stands far back from everything and is ultimately unknowable? The God of the Muslims is not like our God, Yahweh. Is he like Allah, far away? Is he like the force from Star Wars, just kind of this mystical thing that is there and permeating everything? Or is he like us if we were God? You may be familiar with the term real-time strategy game. I used to love those types of games. Think uh, maybe SimCity or Age of Empires, Warcraft before it became World of Warcraft. Back in the day, that was the type of game where you would have a, a, a kind of a civilization that you would build up. You would create cities, you would create empires, you had all sorts of different games that you could play, and you would control those people, and you'd send them to do your bidding. Usually you would send them to their death fighting somebody else, and, uh, but, but you didn't care for those people. I remember there was one game I used to play. I was terrible at these games, by the way. Don't take me as an expert at them. I just really liked them. But I, I would click on, you, would, you could click on a person a ton, and they'd get really upset with you and start yelling at you if you just kept clicking on it. But I loved doing that because I'm like, yeah, I'm in charge of you. And they're not even real. Is that what God is like? Just standing above saying, I've created a people. Because after all, in those games, we create a people for ourselves. Is that what our God is like? Well, no, absolutely not. Let's keep going. Verse 9. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to lead for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought them water, or water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. This is our God. He is glorious and all-powerful, yet he wants to have a people and dwell with those people. You see, he rescued his people. He led his people. He came down to them, the pillar of of fire and cloud, leading his people through the wilderness. He spoke to his people. He gave them right and good rules and commandments. He gave provision for his people. He's not far off just saying, 
yeah, you know, maybe I'll do some things with you for my own pleasure and I don't really care about you. No, he does beautiful things for them and loves them and then that speaks to who he is. It is about his glory, but he delights in calling the people out for himself and delights in them and they in him. And it is a beautiful, beautiful picture. So again, he is the glorious and all-powerful creator, yet he wants to have a people who he will dwell with. Beautiful, beautiful truth. But what is our response? And this isn't a surprise. For those of us who are believers, we know what our response to this glorious and good God so often is. Verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. We disobey and rebel. They disobeyed and rebelled. This is sin. This is what sin is. It's us looking to the God of the universe and saying, you are not our king. We do not want your good and right rules and laws. Uh, On Twitter this week, and for actually the past couple weeks, Tim Keller has been posting uh, a lot of really well thought out thoughts on morality and right living in the world. And you should see some of the ways that secular people have pushed back against him. They say, how dare you talk about right and wrong in this way? You're burdening us. You're telling us who we, we ought to be. You're harming us by giving us these laws. And this is the way we respond to God. We say, we don't want you. Your way is not good for us. But nothing could be further from the truth because he wants good things for us but we've rebelled. Think about it this way. In my house, with several little girls, uh, Disney movies are are quite popular. My personal favorite is Aladdin. I can't get enough of Aladdin. Grew up with it. Love watching it. Imagine you get to the end of Aladdin. And Aladdin, you know, he's got his third wish. We all know he frees the genie, because that's the happy and good ending. But imagine that you get to the end of Aladdin. And Aladdin looks at the genie, and he's like, genie, I know you did all this good stuff for me. You know, I, I know that you're my, you're my boy, you're my friend. But you know what? I wish that you were bound to the lamp forever and that the lamp was buried at the bottom of the deepest mountain. We would look at that just with shock. We would say, how could you? After how this genie treated you and loved you, and yet you want him to suffer? You don't want him in your life? And we have the same response to our creator God. We say, we don't want you. And it should be shocking. This story is familiar to us. We know the story of the Israelites. We know the story of our sin. And so we're not shocked by it. We just say, ah, yeah, we're we're sinful. We kind of brush it off. But guys, this should just wound us deeply. We should look at this and mourn and say, how could we? After the graciousness of God to call them out of slavery, to call us out of slavery, And we rebel against him. But praise be to God. God is not like us. And his response to us is not like our response to him. The rest of 17 says this. But you. But you. Are a God ready to forgive. 
gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and he committed great blasphemies, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the lands, the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. That is God's response. He's faithful. He is ready to forgive. Slow to anger. Full of grace and mercy. When we see in Nehemiah that phrase that we saw at the very beginning of this section, 17b, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, You did not forsake them. This is a callback to Exodus 34.6. Moses, this is in the process when, when God has come down to Sinai. He's meeting with his people. They're making this covenant. And Moses says to him, God, I want to know you. I want to see your glory. And God says to him, well, you you can't. If you do that, you'll die. He says, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'll put my hand over you and my glory will pass you by. I will declare my name in front of you and you can see my backside. And so he does just that. And as Moses is there, he hears the Lord cry out, The Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He says, this is the way that I am. And so when we see in Nehemiah, God's people, they are looking back, saying, God, this is who you declared who you are. You are forgiving. You are gracious. You are merciful. He's ready to forgive. He's not standing back saying, ah, well, maybe, you know, maybe this time. Okay. No, no, it's ready to forgive. Ready to forgive. Saying, yes, I'm eager. That's part of his nature and his heart. When you look at uh, the parable of the unforgiving servant, uh, some of you students got to hear me teach on this several weeks ago. In Matthew 18, Jesus is telling the parable of a servant to a king who owed an unfathomable, but unfathomable debt to the king of 10,000 talents. It would take him multiple lifetimes to ever work that off. And he goes and he pleads with the king to have mercy on him. And the king, out of compassion, He is moved within him. The word there is that he is moved in his bowels. It's a great word. It's it's fun to think about. He's moved in his heart. The bowels for them were the seat of emotions. He's not just saying, well, you know, you asked, and I guess I'm obligated because I'm good. No. It's that he, out of compassion, it wells up within him. He says, I want to move towards you. 
And so the same way in Exodus 34, when God declares that he is gracious and merciful, that he is this forgiving God, he says, this is who I am. I am moving towards you when you cry out to me. He is ready to forgive. When you think of the word grace, it's when you are receiving something good that you don't deserve. Mercy, not receiving something bad that you do deserve. He's both gracious and merciful. He's patient. He's slow to anger. He's patient. He's waiting. Delights in his children. He's abounding in steadfast love. That word for steadfast love doesn't translate well into English. There's a lot of different ways you can translate it. Loyalty, loving kindness, all sorts of things like that. But the word is chesed, and it means this never stopping, never giving up, always and forever faithful kind of love that is loving because it is decided to love. Because it says, you are the one I will always love. I am in covenant and commitment with you. The disposition I will have towards you is one of faithfulness. That is the steadfast love of our Father. And that is part of who he is. He doesn't say these things just because he always thinks, oh, you know, maybe that's nice. Maybe these things are good things I ought to be. No, he says, this is who I am. And because this is who I am, those things are good. They are part of his nature. And what does he do because of all of these things? Because he's gracious and merciful. Because he's ready to forgive. Because he doesn't forsake them. He stays. That pillar of fire and cloud remains. He continues to give them manna. He continues to provide for them. He continues to lead them into the land. He wants to have a people that he will dwell with. He doesn't forsake them. So all of this is to say, God's not just all-powerful creator, God. He doesn't just want to have a people and dwell with them. But he's gracious and forgiving as well. He's gracious and forgiving as well. But we know that. You guys know nothing I've shared here today is like, oh, I've never necessarily heard that before. If it is, well, hey, I'm glad you've been listening. But it also means you probably haven't been listening to Matt. <laughs> but it's, this isn't news but we still struggle with the question of what if I continue to screw up? We see our hearts and we think, what now? Imagine if I cheated on one of my exams and I went to the professor and I begged for mercy and forgiveness. If I was very lucky, maybe that professor would extend grace to me. What if I did it again? I'd be terrified to go and ask for graciousness mercy. And what if I did it again and again? Because we know in our relationship with the Lord, we know he's gracious and merciful. We've received his grace and mercy. Yet at the same time, we still sin. And it leads us to ask, Lord, what now? Do you still have graciousness and forgiveness and mercy for me? Let's keep reading. Verse 26, nevertheless, they were disobedient. They were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from, their, from the hand of their enemies. 
But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. Your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless... In your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Nevertheless, they were disobedient. And then you get this downward spiral, all from the book of Judges, all throughout their history, leading up till the time of Nehemiah. Downward and downward and downward again. They sin, and they sin, and they sin. They cry out, they cry out, they cry out. God forgives them, he forgives them, he forgives them. And then we get, nevertheless, in his mercies, he did not forsake them. There's two things I particularly want us to see in this last little paragraph that we read. First, is that God has inexhaustible mercies. Inexhaustible mercies. The song we sang, our sin is great, but your mercy is more. Inexhaustible mercies. He had a continued gracious disposition. And why did he save them? Because of his mercy. Not because he's like, well, I guess I ought to. But because it's who he is. And that included the warnings that he gave. It included him continually going to his people and saying, hey, This is the way I want you to be, sending prophets. He does the same thing with us. He gives us his word. He warns us through it. He warns us through the people in our lives, through what he has said, through the church body, through his word, through all of these things. He continually reaches to us and says, I want you to hear. He disciplines us, but he is merciful. It is an act of mercy because his ways are good and delightful. So that's the first thing I want us to see. He has inexhaustible mercies. But secondly, this is key. We're going to develop it a little bit more after we read some more. But secondly, in order for us to experience his forgiveness, we must cry out and acknowledge our need. You see that particularly in this section. They cry out, God responds. They cry out, God responds. That's a key part for us experiencing and knowing God's forgiveness. It's him Listening to our cry. When we think of who God is and his listening ear and it coming out of who he is, we need to understand that who he is is the reason why Jesus went to the cross. We're separated from him because of our sin, because of our rebellion. There is a price we ought to pay. But God says, because I am forgiving, because this is who I am, I'm allowing this sin to exist in the world because I want to forgive. And so he sent his son, the father sent the son, Jesus, to die on the cross, paying the price that we owed for our sin. Nehemiah's people, as they confess 
and they worship. They're looking back on all the things that God had done. They're seeing, oh my goodness, God, you did this for your people, and they cried out and you responded. You were forgiving and gracious. Then they did this, and they cried out and you responded, and you were gracious. We do the same thing. We look back and we say, yes, God, I see your grace and mercy through the cross. I see that you love because you died for what I've done. You didn't say, well, good luck. Good luck earning off or, or getting, making right all the wrongs you've done, which we can't because we've done an infinite amount. He said, no, I will move toward you in grace and forgiveness. I will go to the cross. I will go to the cross. And we can tr- we choose to either embrace that forgiveness We can place our faith in him, in Jesus' sufficient death on the cross, or we can say, no, I'm going to strike it out on my own. And then we can choose to either sit down and have faith. Imagine if that's a chair. We're saying, yes, I'm trusting that Jesus' death on the cross is enough. It will support the weight of my sin. Or we say, no, I'm going to make my own chair, and I'm going to trust that it will hold me. And spoiler alert, it won't. But we have that choice. We can choose to believe or not. We can, we can place our faith in him or we cannot. If we do, he promises, he says, I will give you my spirit. His spirit comes in, makes us new. But then that leads us to the question of, well, okay, but I still have this sin. All right, I understand that at one point in my life, there's a, there's a time when I'm not in God's family and then I place my faith in Jesus' death on the cross and I become part of his family but then I still keep sinning. Well, over time, on the one hand, if his spirit is within us, we grow. Our lives will look more and more like Jesus. We become more and more aware of our sin and we're able to turn away from it more and more. But at the same time, we are still sinning. And so we're not standing under God's wrath. But at the same time, we do have to still ask for forgiveness. In the same way, if I sin against Roxanne, she doesn't cease to be my wife. She may even know about my sin, and she may even want to extend grace and mercy and forgiveness to me, but I still have to go to her and say, will you forgive me for this? I can't just kind of sit back over here and be like, well, I guess it's okay because she's great and she loves me. No, I ought to come to her and say, look, I did something wrong. Will you forgive me? And it's the same way with our relationship with the Lord. All of our sins were in the future when Jesus died on the cross. They were taken care of in that moment. God, in his eternal wisdom, in his outside of timeness, I don't know the fancy theological word for that, but I'm sure there is one. All of our sins were paid for right then. And so it's not a, a sense of, of justification or right standing with God that me as a believer that I have to approach him and get forgiveness. But it is a sense of right relationship or, uh, or fellowship, you, w- you would say, of needing to come to him and say, Lord, I screwed up. I screwed up. Will you forgive me? And that's what we struggle with because we think, I don't want to do it again. I don't want to have to go through that and Admit to the Lord, here I am again. We forget that he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. At the beginning of this paragraph, it said, nevertheless, they were disobedient. And at the end, we had, nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end for them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. 
Guys, that is not a mistake, that it is written that way. That is purposefully drawing our attention to our brokenness and God's mercy. Christians, God still stands with open arms for you. Maybe you've lashed out in anger towards a friend again. Nevertheless, he extends grace and mercy to you. Maybe you looked at pornography again. Nevertheless, he extends grace and mercy to you. Gossiped again. Nevertheless, he extends grace and mercy to you. Maybe you were passive-aggressive or made that snide comment again. Nevertheless, he extends grace and mercy to you. Maybe you cheated on that test again. Nevertheless, he extends grace and mercy to you. Christian, you were prideful again. Nevertheless, he extends grace and mercy to you. You were foolish with your money again. Nevertheless, he extends grace and mercy to you. You overindulged or sought comfort in food again. Nevertheless, he extends grace and mercy to you. Maybe you avoided food or placed too much value in your body image again. Nevertheless, he extends grace and mercy to you. You were jealous again. Nevertheless, he extends grace and mercy to you. You focused on your own needs again instead of the needs of others. Nevertheless, he extends grace and mercy to you. You were apathetic toward him again, avoiding his people and skipping time in your Bible, failing to be at church again. Nevertheless, he extends grace and mercy to you and you failed to love your neighbor again. Nevertheless, he extends grace and mercy to you, and you failed to love the Lord yet again. Nevertheless, he extends grace and mercy to you. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Those are the words of Paul as he reflects upon the the great mercy that God has shown to us. We have wandered nevertheless God extends grace and mercy and does not forsake us because that is who he is. That is who he is. So what do we do with all of this? What do we do with this being our God? Let's open to the last part of this passage and we're going to see the response of the Israelites and it ought to be the same response of us. Verse 32. Now therefore our God the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. There it is again. Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandment and your warnings that you gave them. 
even in their own kingdom, and amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves to this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, of our Levites, and our priests. This passage as a whole, as we see in this concluding paragraph here, this passage on a whole calls us to two things. One, to reflect on and embrace our sin. To reflect on and embrace our sin. I'll explain that in a minute. And two, to reflect on and embrace God's mercies. To reflect on and embrace God's sin, and to reflect on and embrace God's mercies. By embrace our sin, I don't mean being like, yeah, this is great, I'm just going to keep doing it, I like it. No, not, not that kind of embrace. But an ownership of it. Saying, yes, indeed, this is mine. That kind of embrace. So let's look at this this first, let's break this into two parts, the, the embracing of our sin and the embracing of God's mercies. The first part is confession. That's what confession is, is embracing our sin. What they do in these verses, first off, they affirm God's justice. Verse 33, we see that. He says, look, you have been righteous in all that's come upon us. It's not our fault, or sorry, excuse me, it's not your fault, it's ours. You've been right in the way that you have dealt with us. This is discipline, and it is the result of us, our sin. Secondly, what we see in verses 34 and 35 is they own the sin of their ancestors. There is a corporate nature to sin. Corporate nature to sin. This doesn't mean that the people before us, that we are guilty or stand under God's wrath because of what they've done. Yet there is a corporate nature of sin that affects the people after us. The sin of our forefathers, we suffer through the consequences of what they've done. The choices that they made. And it is right and good for us to look back and say, Lord, that's the way they behaved. We confess that that was bad. And we confess that we follow in their footsteps. My children have the same sin proclivities as me. They are not guilty of my sin, yet they have inherited my sin. And that oftentimes comes out in very similar patterns. And I hope and pray that as my children grow, that someday they will look back at my life and they won't say, my dad is perfect. But they will look back at my my life and they will see my sin and they will say, Lord, please let me not be like that. I hope they see the good and that they want to strive to be like that, but I hope they see that being Christ in me. And they will not hold me up as a hero, but will hold me up as a broken man. And they will learn from my life. So we look back into the past, and we don't run from it, but we embrace it. So that we say we can grow. We can be more holy. I hope 300 years from now, that nobody holds us up as heroes. But they hold us up as broken people. And they say, let us repent of the sin that they did. Because hopefully they will see clearer than us. I want to grow as much as I can so that the people who follow me will see as clear as they can. So there's a corporate nature of sin. We're seeing that now with all the civil unrest that is is the result of the racism and the trouble of our past in our nation. 
that, that the church, our denomination, was terribly guilty of. Our denomination formed so that people could continue owning slaves. And we're facing the repercussions of that today. We don't need to run from that. We need to learn from it and grow and trust in the Lord's grace and mercy because he is ready to forgive, ready to forgive. So they own their sins. You see this as well in verse 37. Say, it's rich yield, talking about the gifts that they're enjoying. It's rich yield goes to the kings whom you've set over us because of our sins. So they're looking into the past. They're seeing the sins of their fathers. They're recognizing that we are not living in the land today because of the sins of our father, but also our sins now. Our sins now. So confession requires actually going to the Lord and saying, I have sinned. I have sinned also may require going to people. That's often very helpful. Scriptures even talk about confessing our sin to one another so that we may be clean. Confessing our sin to the Lord and to others helps bring healing. Helps bring healing. So don't just confess it and be like, I'm going to hide it and I'm never going to share it. Confess it to the Lord, other people, so that we can experience grace amongst one another. So they confess sin and then they reflect on God's mercies. And they place hope in his mercies. When I say reflect and embrace, I mean that they are trusting in his mercies. You see, they ask God to remember and rescue them. We see that in the very beginning in verse 32. They're saying, let not all the hardship seem little to you. That's a way of saying, Lord, please help us. This is a big deal. We need help. Let it not seem little to you. Please see this as a big deal. Confession to a God with no mercy is pointless. Why confess to a God if our confession means nothing? But we don't confess to that type of God. We confess to one who is merciful and rescues. We're free to confess our sins because we know that we can turn to him in hope and that he does come and perform miracles and wonders and deliver us from sin. The current reality that they're living in, I mentioned this before, is that they're they're not living in the land. They're living under oppression and slavery. There's kind of this, they are his people, they are in his land, but they're awaiting the restoration. They're awaiting God's return. Similar for us. We are not to our heavenly home. We await his coming rescue just as them. We wait for it now. We're in the same situation where we can cry out to him, Lord, this is our brokenness, but we trust in your mercies and we hope that you will deliver us. So again, when we look at this passage as a whole and we take everything, it's calling for us to reflect on and embrace our sin, confession, and then reflect and embrace God's mercies. Reflect on and embrace God's mercies. I have a simple kind of phrase for you to hopefully help you remember this. It's to see your sin... And then see the cross. So see your sin. Look at what we have done. Acknowledge it. And then look to the cross to remember and embrace God's forgiveness. Because that is where his forgiveness and mercy is displayed. Right there on the cross. This isn't a get out of jail free card. It's not a I can just keep going and doing whatever I've done. If sin doesn't grieve me. And I'm not talking about the consequence of sin and just, oh, I was caught and that feels bad. If it doesn't grieve me with a godly sorrow, it must make me ask the question, do I understand the king who I am grieving? 
as I confess and repent. It should grow my heart and help me to not want to sin any longer. So see your sin and then see the cross. See your sin. See the cross. Now there are four groups of people in this room that I want to wrap up in talking to. First, and on Zoom as well. There are those who have never surrendered and you know it. You know that you are not part of God's family. And I beg of you to look at God's disposition. Look at the way that he treats his family. It's with grace and mercy. But he is a just God and sin must be dealt with. You can pay for it yourself or you can trust in his gracious disposition towards you. In verse 38, you see them saying, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. You see, they're entering in, they're renewing the agreement that they had with God, but they're, they're entering into this covenant. And Jesus, in his life, brings the new covenant that we are all invited into. A covenant that is not about following a bunch of rules and laws, but it's a covenant written on our hearts, and God invites us into that covenant. So if you have not joined into his family, he invites you. He says, look, the, the terms of the covenant have been paid. All you have to do is believe. All you have to do is believe. Placing your faith that Jesus' payment on the cross was enough. There's a second group. It's those people who have never surrendered. But maybe you've grown up in church. Maybe you think you've surrendered. You've been operating under a view of God. Or deep down you thought, you know, I'll work it out someday. Well, I beg of you too to turn to God and embrace his disposition to own your sin. Stop trying to earn your way. You're never going to be in a place where you're pleasing God. You can't. He already says, look, I'm pleased in my son and I'm offered, I'm offering him to you. Third group are those who have surrendered to the Lord. You are in his family, but you still live in uncertainty. Or perhaps you're numb. You see the sin in your life and you're like, just Lord, what do I do with this? I'm tired of it or I just feel blah about it. God's disposition to you has not changed. I urge you to continue coming to him. Plead with him to say, Lord, help me to see my sin clearly so that it grieves me as it grieves you. Help me to continually confess it to you and turn and walk with you. And lastly, there are those of you who have surrendered and are experiencing his lavish grace, and I say to you, excel still more. Continually see your sin as well and turn to his mercies. Confess your sin and turn to him because he is good. He is good. He is the all-powerful creator God. He wants a people, but he is gracious and merciful towards them. And all we have to do is cry out. See your sin. See the cross. He's not standing far off with arms crossed. He's faithful, gracious, and merciful. You have sinned, and you will sin. Nevertheless, he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Let me pray. Father, you are slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. You are gracious and merciful and you don't forsake your people. Father, we praise you for your love. We praise you that you are just. We praise you that you don't take sin and just throw it away, but you dealt with it on the cross. 
You put our sin on the cross. And you can tell us that our sin has been thrown into the depths of the sea and it is not on us anymore. Father, help us to embrace that truth. Help us to see your forgiveness, to see your truth, to see your beauty. May we not be numb to it. May we repent, may we confess, may we believe. I pray this all in Jesus' name.